Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Gibson Energy's fourth quarter and full year 2020 conference call. Please be advised that this call is being recorded. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Mr. Mark Hitzchest, Vice President, Strategy, Planning, and Investor Relations. Mr. Hitzchest, please go ahead. Thank you, Operator. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on this conference call discussing our fourth quarter and full year 2020 operational and financial results. On the call this morning from Gibson Energy are Steve Spaulding, President and Chief Executive Officer, and Sean Brown, Chief Financial Officer. Listeners are reminded that today's call refers to non-GAAP measures and forward-looking information. Descriptions and qualifications of such measures and information are set out in our continuous disclosure documents available on CDAR. Now, I'd like to turn the call over to Steve. Thanks, Mark. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. In a very challenging year for our industry, I believe our strategy, which is built around our core terminals on high-quality cash flows and maintaining a very strong balance sheet, proved resilient. As you can see from our 2020 financial results, infrastructure segment profit, $374 million, was in the upper half of the outlook range we gave in 2019. That was pre-COVID, which speaks to the stability and visibility we have in our business. And the 2020 infrastructure segment profit was a $60 million increase from 2019 on a comparable basis. 20% growth year on year. With the tanks we placed in service at the end of 2020, and the DRU expected to enter service on budget and on schedule mid-year. We have the, we have the visibility to further growth this year. It's the strength of our infrastructure business that makes our dividends so solid. Our payout of 66% was below our target range of 70 to 80%. Perhaps more importantly, our infrastructure only payout was 75%. The board and management see the value of modest, stable dividend growth. In a year where many North American midstreamers cut or pause dividend growth, we were very pleased to again increase our dividend by 1%, 1 cent per share per quarter, or about 3%. On the marketing side of the business, we were, we were in the middle of our 80 to $120 million run rate. That said, it was a tale of two halves. In the first half of the year, we saw significant volatility. Our marketing organization was able to move decisively and lock in very meaningful gains. In the second half, it was a very challenging environment. And it looks like 2021 is shaping up to be the inverse. The challenging environment has persisted, 
with very few opportunities available today. I can tell you, I can't tell you when or where the market is going to shift. But looking back over just the last few years, we can see how quickly it can change. Also, marketing outperformance tends to be quite lumpy. With a small number of events driving a good portion of the year's P&L. And in that context, we expect marketing performance to improve at some point through the year. But as we always say, delivering our strategy is not dependent on marketing earnings. One area where we've seen noticeable improvement coming into 2021 is on our commercial discussions. On the tankage front, we are in numerous conversations with customers for tankage at both Hardesty and Edmonton. One of the drivers for tankage at Edmonton is TMX. Discussions on the DRU have also moved forward. Clarity on KXL has helped. We're currently talking to multiple producers and multiple refiners. That said, it's a complicated set of agreements and will take time. Shifting gears to another area where we made significant progress in 2020, advancing our sustainability and ESG initiatives. ESG is very important to GISA. We want to ensure that we embed ESG into all areas of our business and position ourselves as a sustainability and ESG leader. It's both the right thing to do and the smart thing to do. While the core values of ESG have always been a part of Gibson, we started our formal ESG journey in 2020 with the release of our inaugural sustainability report. We also made our first submission to the CDP Climate Change Questionnaire. And we were very pleased to receive an A minus score. We are one of seven oil and gas companies in North America to receive this distinction and also rank in the top 10 globally. For any initiative to be successful, you need to have the right governance in place to ingrain it into your existing business practices. Our board established a dedicated sustainability in the ESG committee. It is chaired by Judy Cott, an expert on ESG and responsible investment. And we have benefited greatly from our experience on our ESG journey thus far. We've also ingrained sustainability in ESG in our strategy process and in evaluating all of our commercial projects. And we've made ourselves accountable with a meaningful proportion of our short-term incentives tied to ESG-related metrics. On the environmental side, clearly a major focus is on emissions. We believe our carbon footprint is already best in class in the North American midstream space. This is both on an emissions per dollar revenue basis and a per barrel throughput basis. We continue to advance opportunities to reduce our emissions footprint. For example, at Moose Jaw, in 2019, we expanded the facility by 30%. By utilizing new heat exchangers, we reduced emission intensity by about 25%. 
and we've identified additional projects that could reduce our emissions. Within the social pillar, our efforts to date have been concentrated on community giving and diversity and inclusion. In 2020, Gibson made a real commitment to a cause I personally feel very strongly about. With a five-year partnership with Trellis and the donation of $1 million, we are very much making a difference in the mental health of youth in our communities. This is the largest financial donation in Gibson's history, and Gibson employees have committed to dedicating a significant number of volunteer hours. On diversity and inclusion, women currently comprise 37% of the workforce and 30% of employees at the vice president level and higher. Our board is one-third women. We took positive steps in 2020. This would include the addition of two women to our board and putting programs in place to attract and retain women to Gibson and to ensure equal representation through the recruitment process. In 2021, expect to see us continue our ESG journey. Our near-term focus will be set on sustainability and ESG targets, which we are in the latter stages of formatting. We will also continue to expand our disclosure and will publish a TCFD-aligned report during the year. Sustainability in ESG continues to evolve very rapidly, and we will very much seek to maintain our existing leadership position. Let me conclude by returning where, where we see the business today. I would stress that our strategy was designed to succeed in any environment. That strategy has not changed, and, it, and its effectiveness has proven again in 2020. Our infrastructure business demonstrated its resilience. Despite the impact of COVID, infrastructure grew 20% in 2020, and we'll and, we'll, and it will grow again this year and into the future. Discussions for tankage at the DRU have advanced. We feel very comfortable in our ability to deploy $150 to $200 million per year without sacrificing returns. And our balance sheet is very strong. We are fully funded, and our dividend remains very well underpinned by our stable, long-term infrastructure cash flows. We will remain conservative in our approach to our business. I will now pass the call over to Sean, who will walk us through our financial results in more detail. Sean. Thanks, Steve. As Steve mentioned, our business had a strong year. Notwithstanding COVID, we were still above our budget for the year on both an adjusted EBITDA and distributable cash flow basis. One of the main drivers was our infrastructure segment which was in the top half of our outlook range. Segment profit for the year was $374 million, including $93 million in the fourth quarter. I would note that the annual figure is a 60 million or nearly 20% increase on a comparable basis. This was largely driven by a full year contribution from the four tanks or 2 million barrels we brought into service in late 2019 at the top of the hill. 
but also by our ability to add some incremental revenues at Hardesty through the year. And this is despite weakness from the relatively small variable component of our infrastructure segment, our conventional pipelines and small terminals in Canada and the U.S. These businesses were certainly impacted by COVID and have yet to recover, remaining roughly 40% below where we initially thought they would be. Comparing the fourth quarter to the third quarter of 2020, we are very much in line. The three tanks, or 1.5 million barrels, we brought into service in the fourth quarter provided only a partial contribution, and we'll see their full benefit in the first quarter of 2021. As a result, we still very much expect to be right at or around the $100 million per quarter run rate for infrastructure we had previously discussed coming into 2021. Marketing adjusted EBITDA of $104 million and segment profit of $95 million for the full year put us in the middle of our long-term run rate. As Steve mentioned, that was driven by a strong start and then a very challenging environment towards the end of the year. In the fourth quarter, adjusted EBITDA was negative $4 million and segment profit was negative $9 million. The strong start to the year was in part due to the volatility we saw during the onset of COVID, with one of the largest factors being the availability of time-based opportunities given the steep contango in the futures curve, whereas opportunities in the crude marketing business were very limited in the back half of the year. On the refined product side, road asphalt had a fairly strong year, in line with 2019, though other key products such as roofing flux and distillates had positive margin but we're down year over year. In response to the current environment, where drilling fluid demand remains fairly weak and asphalt demand is seasonally lower, we are also looking to capture seasonal opportunities on certain refined products. In any year, within our refined products business, seasonal optimization opportunities may exist, and we, at times, participate in these by storing some of our products in the winter months and selling in the summer months. This year will be no different, and the impact of this is to push out some revenues from the fourth quarter of 2020 and the first quarter of 2021 into the second and perhaps third quarters of 2021, albeit for higher margins. In characterizing our fourth quarter results, I think it's also very important to note that to the extent that marketing is not performing at levels that it has historically, it's reflective of the fact that the opportunities that they were able to find were not sufficient to fully offset the ITP commitments they have in place, rather than because we made the wrong market calls or took on high-risk positions that went sideways. These ITPs are generally flat through the year, where earnings can be lumpy or seasonal. We also very much recognize the noise created by having both a segment profit and adjusted EBITDA measure. We've been looking at reporting a single measure to be accountable to, though we think it makes the most sense to start reporting that with the first quarter rather than making the adjustment in the fourth quarter. In reviewing peer disclosures and thinking about what is most appropriate for our business, we are leaning to something akin to adjusted EBITDA as that removes the noise created by unrealized hedging gains and losses and focuses on the economic value generated in the period. I would caution that it's something we are still working through with a formal decision to be made in conjunction with our Q1 2021 results. Shifting to our outlook for marketing, as Steve said, it remains a very challenging environment. 
And absent a change in that environment, it will be a fairly challenging quarter for the crude marketing business, given the very limited opportunities. Combine that with our outlook for refined products, where we continue to see reduced product demand due to the pandemic, our outlook on an adjusted EBITDA basis for the quarter is around break-even. That being said, we do expect to see a recovery throughout the year, especially on the refined product side, as end use normalizes with a more fulsome economic recovery given the rollout of the vaccine, though differentials are likely to stay narrow on a historical basis. And, as has always been our approach, if we are setting reasonable expectations, then we need to consider that absent a meaningful change in the environment relatively soon, there's certainly the potential to be at the low end or potentially even below our 80 to $120 million run rate in 2021. As Steve said, marketing is lumpy. We could certainly see a couple events that get us comfortably back into that range quite quickly, and that's certainly what history has shown us, but at this time, we can't say we have clear line of sight to that. And to speak to what weakness in our marketing business could mean for our strategy, I said it on the last call, but I think it is very much worth repeating. I could not be more clear than to say that we do not rely on our marketing business to fund our capital, fund our dividend, or support our leverage. We are very deliberate in designing a framework that anticipated eventual volatility and the variable part of our business. For that reason, in addition to our overall leverage target being conservative relative to peers, despite the cash flows from our infrastructure business being amongst the highest quality, our financial governing principles include measures for maintaining infrastructure-only leverage at or below four times, as well as not paying out more than 100% of our infrastructure-only cash flows. We currently are, and very much see ourselves continuing to remain within both measures, with quite a bit of headroom on our infrastructure-only payout. Obviously, corporate-level measures matter, but it's really the infrastructure-only measures that we fundamentally run our business around, given the variability in the marketing business is not within our control. As a result, and very much by design, even with the moderation and contribution from our marketing business, we remain in a very strong financial position, including being fully funded for all of our anticipated capital. Given the strategy we have in place and our conservative financial governing principles, we are comfortable living at the lower end or even below our long-term marketing run rate and in no way will change our marketing strategy or risk tolerance to chase earnings. Finishing up the discussion of the results, let me quickly work down to distributable cash flow. G&A of $33 million in 2020 was below our normalized run rate, largely due to COVID-related items, with the fourth quarter very much in line with the third quarter. Lower interest costs were one of the key wins in 2020, with a decrease of $10 million from 2019. Refinancing our debt over the past 18 months has been a major focus, reducing our run rate interest costs by over $20 million per year. For context, that re- represents that 7% of distributable cash flow and our weighted average coupon on our notes would be by far the lowest within our Canadian mid-sized peer group at just over 3%, while at the same time having the second longest weighted average center. Replacement capital of $23 million in 2020 was slightly below 2019 as a result of deferring certain discretionary work to this year, given the impact of COVID and a focus on costs. Taxes in 2020 were comparable with 2019, 
with a recovery in the current quarter related to an adjustment booked for the Alberta Job Creation Tax Cut. Lease payments were slightly lower in 2020 than 2019. We've been very much looking to reduce our lease costs and would expect that in 2021, these lease costs could could decrease further. These factors resulted in distributable cash flow in 2020 being fairly comparable to 2019. The largest dynamic here is the growth in infrastructure largely offset the decrease in marketing and the interest savings and lower lease costs also helped to close the gap. The fourth quarter was $11 million lower than the third quarter of 2020 due to the decrease in marketing contribution. And on a trailing 12-month basis, rolling off a stronger quarter with the fourth quarter of 2019 having been $22 million higher than the fourth quarter of 2020 due to the weaker contribution from marketing in the current quarter, our payout ratio increased modestly to 66%, but it's still well below our 70 to 80% target range. Similarly, our debt-to-adjusted EBITDA was relatively flat at 2.8 times, which remains below our three to three and a half times target. Speaking to our financial position, our approach will continue to be in favor of remaining conservative, including maintaining a fully funded position for all our capital and being proactive in having significant available committed liquidity. At the end of the year, we're only $60 million drawn on our $750 million credit facility with about $54 million of cash on the balance sheet or effectively undrawn on a net basis. We also have $115 million of unutilized capacity on our $150 million bilateral demand facilities, so very significant liquidity with years of running room given our 66% pay ratio and $200 million capital program. In terms of being proactive, in 2020, we completed our transition to a fully investment-grade capital structure with the issuance of a $250 million hybrid to fund the redemption of our $100 million convertible debentures. We are very pleased to be able to replace a potentially dilutive convert with a non-dilutive, longer tenor hybrid while maintaining the same 5.25% coupon. Also, we were able to ensure that the redemption was non-dilutive through the limited use of our NCIB in December. With these actions, we came into 2021 with significant available liquidity. And as our upsizing our credit facility in February 2020 showed, you can never be too proactive in maintaining liquidity. It's when you need it that the price goes up and availability goes down, as many issuers saw during the onset of COVID. In summary, the business had a good year in a very challenging environment. Our infrastructure segment had a very strong year and marketing was within our long-term run rate expectation. The current environment for marketing is challenging. While that will change in time, the more important point is that we simply don't rely on it in order to execute on our strategy. We very much believe that our business offers a strong total return proposition to investors with visibility to continued high quality investment opportunities in our infrastructure segment resulting in attractive distributable cash flow per share growth, which supports a meaningful growing dividend, all while maintaining a very strong balance sheet and financial position. At this point, I will turn the call over to the operator to open it up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question at this time, please press star then one or you touched on telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish, or you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. 
Please stand by while we can talk to you roster. Our first question comes from Jeremy Tonette with J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Morning, Jeremy. Just wanted, just wanted to start off with regards to uh, marketing outlook and how it impacts, I guess, capital allocation philosophy as you guys see it right now. Does does a softer marketing outlook right now kind of impact how you think about buybacks, the pace of buybacks, or is that really kind of more tied to you know growth capex uh, in in general? And uh, just the level of, of money you're spending, you know, with the, the balance of it would be uh, put towards buybacks. Just wondering the whole capital allocation plus between buybacks, cap, growth capex, and dividend growth it works out right now. Sean, can you take that? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, so, I mean, our capital allocation philosophy really hasn't changed. Uh, and as a refresher, you know, for everyone on the call, you know, buys towards funding growth capital to the extent that we're deploying it at that five to seven build multiple under long-term contracts with investment-grade counterparties. You know, that will absolutely remain our priority. You know, also remaining fully funded and within our financial governing principles. To the extent that there's excess cash flow, uh, and you would have seen it in conjunction with the results here, and that's primarily from infrastructure, then we certainly have a bias towards uh, modest annual dividend increases over time. Uh, with, you know, infrastructure segment profit going up 20% uh, on a year-over-year basis. Again, you know, you saw that with the modest dividend increase that we announced this year. Notwithstanding, uh, you know, a challenging environment because of COVID, uh, we have been clear that to the extent that we have excess cash flow and it's primarily from marketing, then we would very much buy a share buybacks. And so, you know, Jeremy, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the marketing outlook does impact, you know, our ability or, um, you know, our desire to do share buybacks in the first half of the year, certainly. Um, you know, we would like to see some measure of recovery in that marketing business before we look at that uh, more fulsomely uh, as we think of it the back half of the year. And, you know, the other part is, you know, all the factors you mentioned aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. If you think of it, the capital spend we have, it is more front-end loaded this year. Uh, so, again, we'd like to get through the bulk of that capital spend in the first half of the year as well uh, and see some measure of a, a recovery in the marketing business. And then I think you would see us look at a buyback program or reinstituting a buyback program more fully, probably closer to the back half of the year. Got it. Understood. That's helpful. Thanks. And pivoting over to the DRU here, uh, the potential for expansion, I was just wondering, you know, granted it's a very complicated uh, contract structure there that you're looking to sign, but any, you know, thoughts you could provide on when this might kind of come to fruition, potential expansions, uh, is this kind of a this year or next year event or later dated, just trying to get more feeling on when you think that could uh, come together. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. Um, you know, we're, we're very excited about our phase one with uh, Conoco. You know, that, that first 50000 is underpinned by a 10-year take or pay. Uh, so uh, this is our first, uh, really the first DRU, commercial DRU in, in Canada, and we think it's a real opportunity. You know, I think, I think clarity around KXL has certainly helped, and discussions have picked up with, uh, as we continue to talk to multiple producers and, and refiners. So you have the U.S. pool. And now that KXL is kind of cleared up, um, the feedstocks in, in Mexico, you know, coming from from uh, Venezuela and Mexico continue to decline. So those U.S. refineries 
need that heavy crude oil produced by Canada. And likewise, the Canadian producers want that U.S. market. And so we think that this is a real opportunity for them, uh, and discussions continue to heat up. But I would say it's com- it would be later in the year, probably a, I would say a fourth quarter, third, late third or fourth quarter, if we're able to do it this year, Jeremy. Got it. That's helpful. And then just one last one, if I could. I think at points in the past you discussed, you know, two to four tanks is something that you guys would target in the long term. And just wondering, you know, how you think about that right now, given, you know, the, everything we've gone through with COVID and the cycle, um, you know, do you do you see your, that rate still achievable or just any updated thoughts there would be helpful? Well, I would say, you know, COVID kind of put a pause on things. But um, as, the, as the year started this year, commercial negotiations have really heated up, uh, both at Edmonton and at Hardesty. In fact, uh, at Hardesty, uh, we did we did sign a, uh, a short-term agreement uh, with one of the oil sands producers, and uh, we were going to actually move the marketing tank that we – our first marketing tank that we leased to marketing, we're going to lease that to that producer. Um and we see several other opportunities. We have a we have probably four different customers that are wanting tanks at Hardesty. Uh, and then at Edmonton, we're getting very close to signing a construction signing agreement to start doing initial engineering engineering work on building tanks there. So those those discussions are really starting to pick up, and they're associated with TMX and other opportunities uh, at, at Edmonton, Chairman. So I would say that two to four tanks a year is still very viable. Uh, and we see pretty good line of sight over that over the next uh, three, or four, three, three to four years. Thank you. Our next question comes from Ben Sam with BMO. Your line is open. All right, thanks. Good morning. I wanted to follow up on the Edmonton opportunity in particular, and you, you mentioned uh, TMX is, is a driver. You mentioned other opportunities. Can you can you expand on these these other opportunities? And then on on Trans Mountain, uh, is is expectation that uh, in the past you've seen producers wanting to storage ahead of time, and you you lease it on a on a spot basis before the pipeline's actually in service. Um, so yeah, so on 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 tanks at Edmonton, obviously TMX is driving that. We have a mainline connection uh, in, into Trans Mountain, um, and there's several customers there. The other driver is really what producers are seeing is synergies between those two markets, an Edmonton and Hardesty, and the ability for them to swap barrels back and forth and optimize their netbacks is really driving some. Some of the other talks, Ben. And as far okay, as and building early, I, you know, I don't know that we need to build anything early. I think, uh, kind of timing-wise, is you know, we, you know, to have tanks ready, we'll need to we'll need to contract them later this year to have tanks ready on the current timeline for TMS. Okay, so we should think about um, in-service of potential tanks more more aligning with that that late 2022 service and. In, in the past, uh, the spot revenues, that's, that, that sounds like it was more just uh, you, you completed tanks earlier than, than expected. Correct, correct. Yeah, and then you're only talking about one or two months, generally, Ben, mm-hmm. uh, 
when we do that. Okay. And, and maybe maybe switch to marketing side of things and can appreciate the language around not, not relying on it and, and maybe there's opportunity to, to buy back stock in, in the second half and potentially see a recovery. Uh, but what are your, your thoughts about the, the just simply looking at uh, overall exposure uh, strategically moving it lower? Uh, you 20% EBITDA today. Uh, is there, are you open to moving it to 10%, whether it's uh, less fixed commitments, selling Moose Jaw? Uh, I know you're probably not going to get a, a great price on that today, but you, you haven't been against selling assets at five times EBITDA in the past. So any sort of context on, on where you want marketing to be long-term, if that's any any thought and any changes there? You know, I think, you know, when we came out on our strategy in 2018, at that time, I, we came out with that with a 60 to 80 kind of um, run rate is on a long-term run rate. And, you know, there was quite a bit of volatility in the market over the last couple of years, and we moved that – you know, I think the 80 to 120. And last year, you know, last year we came right in the mid range. Um, you know, if, if, you know, if, if things continue to tighten up on the differential between WCS and WTI on a long term basis, you know, that will put, that does increase our feedstock at Moose Jaw and reduce our crack spread. So, you know, we may we may in the long term have to move that down some, but we're always going to make, you know, maybe maybe to 60 to 100 in the long term, but we don't know yet. Uh, but right now we're still at that 80 to 120, and we feel comfortable uh, over the next couple of years in that 80 to 120. Ben? Hey, Ben, the only thing I'd add to that, too, is that if, um, you know, if you structurally move down your ability to generate margin out of that business, you know, that, that not only impacts in, in more challenging times like right now, but that would also impact our ability to achieve outsized results in both 2018 and 2019. And so I think that's something to remember, that if you structurally change the business, you know, in the periods when the market presents opportunities, like we certainly have seen, you know, up until recently, then you permanently probably impair your ability to get those outsized results, at least to the same quantum. So that, that that's also the offset, um, you know, to a strategic decision, uh, as you would note there. Okay. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you. Our next question comes from Rob Hope with Scotiabank. Your line is open. Uh, morning, everyone. Um, Two questions. The first one's just on the 2021 outlook for infrastructure. So good to see that you reiterated that $100 million a quarter uh, until the DRU shows up. But can we, you know, delve a little bit further to what that assumes on the other infrastructure uh, side? Does that assume that uh, the U.S. pipes kind of stay where they were at uh, in Q4? Does that kind of assume a pickup uh, uh, back to more kind of budgeted levels? Sean? Yep. Thanks, Rob. I mean, it would assume a very, very modest pickup. I, I mean, I think it's important to highlight that really the core of our infrastructure business is truly our tankage business. So that's going to drive, um, you know, the vast, vast majority of that. And that's what's driving our confidence in reiterating the $100 million. It, it really is having a full quarter contribution from the three tanks or 1.5 million barrels that we have in service. Um, you know, it does assume 
a very, very modest uh, improvement over Q4 levels at both the U.S. and in Canada. But again, you know, very modest and, and overall, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that's a significant swing factor. All right. Thanks for that. And then uh, uh, can we, you know, maybe discuss a little bit further that uh, the commentary on the short-term tankage uh, contract that you have with the oil sands customer in Hardesty. You know, how long of a contract is that right now? And then, um, you know, could you also see, you know, just you, you leasing out that marketing tank to the uh, to the customer on a longer term basis, and then you know, build another marketing tank? Uh, you know, we never really go into exact details of, of contracts, but um, you know, it's but. We feel comfortable that that will become a long-term tank uh, to that customer, uh, and we actually feel that customer will probably will build several tanks for that customer over the next couple of years um, with their plans, as they've discussed. So we're feeling pretty comfortable at Hardesty to continue to build uh, tankage going, you know, going out into the future. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Patrick Kinney with National Bank Financial. Your line is open. Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, just as we think about refinery utilization levels here continuing to recover um, throughout the year, I guess on the one hand, it might increase throughput at terminals, uh, but on the other hand, it might keep demand for Canadian crude and, and differentials quite narrow. So just wondering if you could help triangulate you know, a net headwind or net tailwind for your overall business as refinery runs continue to normalize? Um, One of the things that refinery runs do continue to normalize that will increase, you know, distillate pricing and, you know, that, and as U.S. drilling starts to pick up, you know, now that we're over $60 right at or $60 crude, we do think the U.S. will start drilling. So with that higher distillate price and higher crack spread across distillate, we think our drilling fluid market will pick up um, across the year. Um, as far as, um, I mean, that's probably the biggest driver. You know, the other thing is, you know, what's going to happen uh, with uh, DAPL? What's going to happen with Line 5? Um, those those could have impacts on the differentials between WCS and WTI and thus have an impact on, you know, our feedstock price into the facility. Okay, thanks for that, Steve. Um, and then my next question just here on, you know, the broader theme of industry consolidation, both on the upstream front and also more recently in the midstream space, uh, I guess is a way to crystallize value here in a low-growth environment. Does this flattish production trend, you know, change the way you, you think at all about delivering total return, total return to shareholders, you know, in the form of steady organic growth, as opposed to pursuing more strategic partnerships with other midstreamers, or perhaps even looking more at M&A, even if it's on a financially neutral basis, but just to increase the overall size of the company? Well, I mean, you know, this year we, we, we've announced that we're going to spend another up to, you know, $200 million in capital, which will allow us to continue to deploy and, you know, get, you know, continue to grow our infrastructure um, 
uh, earnings. You know, last year we had a 20% growth in infrastructure earnings. We put, we're going to put on three tanks. In, in, we put on three tanks in November. The DRU is coming on. So we're, we're feeling comfortable continuing just the growth in the business and the status quo is a good strategy. Obviously, we'll look for opportunities in our, you know, to, to improve the total return to our shareholders. Because at the end of the day, that's the most important thing is that total return to our shareholders. Uh, Sean, you want to comment any more on that? No, no, I, I think you hit it, Steve. I think, yeah, Pat, as Steve said, we still have very much have conviction in our strategy. Um, you know, we have visibility to growth. We, you know, we feel confident with our financial position. Um, and so, you know, as we've always said, you know, something like M&A is, um, you know, something we're not necessarily averse to, but, I mean, the bar is so incredibly high, given the visibility that we have. There's just nothing that has, you know, cleared that hurdle. So, you know, we certainly don't see a need for M&A. Uh, as Steve said, you know, we've got confidence in our strategy and the visibility we have around it. Okay, that's great. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Our next question comes from Robert Cattelier with CIBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Hi, good morning, and thank you for your uh, comments this morning. Um, I'll just start by saying that uh, I would be supportive of your uh, change to reporting adjusted EBITDA in an effort to remove the, uh, the hedging noise. Um, at this point, most of my questions have been answered, but maybe just one on the carbon tax front. Um, so if uh, carbon taxes are, in fact, raised as envisioned, how would you account for this um, item in uh, project economics? Because it does have a big controversy and could be subject to change. So, uh, And with that, does it make any uh, projects more or less likely to, to reach up, in your opinion? Uh, so we're we're certainly putting it in our in our project economics, Robert. Um, you know, but you know what is the what what is the what is the height of that? We don't really know, uh, but we're definitely putting that that carbon tax in our economics. Uh, you know, most of our business, as you know, is is the tankage business, where we we really don't have any carbon. Uh, so, you know, one of the things. You know, when we when we released our CDP report, is you know our company is by far best in class when it comes to uh, CO2 emissions on a per barrel basis or even on a per revenue basis, and that's because of the just the tankage business itself isn't. So the one place that we do have the the two places we do have carbon tax one is at Moose Jaw. And that would certainly increase our expenses at Moose Jaw. Uh, and then the other is at, you know, on the DRU itself. Um, and that would, that would certainly impact, uh, the economics of a DRU, uh, to our customers. Um, but at Moose Jaw, you know, we have a, we're, we're excited about a project there that we think will reduce our, uh, will reduce our carbon emissions. Uh, by about 25% there, and um, that has a very positive rate of return. And we're we're looking we're looking to we're looking to move forward to that project very soon. Okay, that's helpful. And then um, I just want to offer an opportunity if you have any updates to uh, volunteer on what the uh, Snovas Husky merger might mean for the harvesting position and uh, contract renewal. Thanks. 
Um, you know, so Nova's a very important customer of ours. Um, we, we're, you know, we think this is a great uh, opportunity for them in synergies. We think what we can provide a lot of that synergy. We have best-in-class connectivity, uh, um, probably far better than any of the other terminals, and we have the ability to really provide them uh, blending opportunities to capture some of those synergies that they have out there. Robert, uh, you know, we're not really, you know, them, them right now, Hardesty, you know, Hus- the Husky terminal is full. Uh, and, you know, economics to probably build new tankage and take from us would be very challenging. Okay, thanks, guys. Thank you. Our next question comes from Linda Ezergalis with TD Security. Show line is open. Linda, your line is open. Please check your mute button. Apologies. Um, recognizing that um, uh, the weather is sometimes even more challenging to predict than the capital markets, I'm wondering if you can just give us a sense of what you think the potential implications for the unfortunate cold snap is uh, in the southern U.S. Um, is there any effect on your business? How might that change how you approach that business prospectively, either um, capturing more connectivity opportunities, um, you know, adding resilience um, to your business for your customers, or uh, might that create some uh, some challenges that might make you rethink uh, the opportunities there long term? Um, well, yeah, the cold snap in the U- U.S. Um, obviously, in the Permian Basin, it. it it almost shut in all that production for about five days. And I was talking to my U.S. Uh, ops person yesterday, and all that production's back online. So it was a five-day event uh, kind of for the U.S. production. Uh, um, so, you know, I, I don't know that it has any real long-term impact, you know, to our strategy in the U.S., uh, which is a very small, small piece of our business. Um and right now, you know, there's very little drilling activity, but talking to our producers, that's about to start pick up um, as the year goes on. Um, right now, on the U.S., I would say we've pulled back on what we're going to what we're going to spend in the U.S. Uh, until things uh, really kind of fundamentally change in 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 the Delaware Basin there. Okay. Um, and maybe just as a follow-up, um, in terms of capital allocation, um, again, a, a strategic question on some of the consolidation uh, we're seeing uh, with maybe uh, just a bit more thought, if we can get from you, on, you know, as producers consolidate and midstreamers consolidate, you know, how important do you think uh, scale is and a bundling ser- bundled services as well in your offerings to your customers? Um, you know, um, might producers want to seek more um, bundled services from from midstreamers, and and how might that um, influence your competitive positioning versus uh, versus some of the more discrete services that you provide currently? As far as bundled services, um, probably that's one of those opportunities that we're talking about there at Edmonton. As far as building a tank, is really starting to bundle the service in between Hardesty and Edmonton. And those two major hubs in in Canada, and how do we 
how do we use the two facilities to really help uh, enhance our producer net back, uh, especially as they consolidate and they get new streams? How do we work together to help them uh, maximize their net backs on their crude oil? Um, I'll let Sean talk about just pure size and the other question. Sean. Yep. Thanks, Steve. Um, yeah, no, Linda, I think we've been always very clear. Um, you know, I, I understand the benefits of being larger. You know, pre-us getting investment grade, that probably would have been, uh, at least from a capital markets perspective, you know, one of the more important, um, you know, because size is certainly a criteria for the rating agencies. Um, you know, with, with our current size from a capital markets perspective, you know, as, as we've always said, you know, what we're very focused on is delivering uh, a total return to our shareholders. You know, so think of that as being, you know, growth for us yield over time. You know, the challenge is you get larger and larger. Uh, it, it's more difficult to achieve that growth. I think Steve spoke about our confidence in being able to deliver on the growth, certainly over the next three to five years here, consistent with, you know, what we have historically. But to the extent that, you know, we were to get larger just for the sake of getting larger, that would make that more difficult. So given our focus on delivering, you know, total return to shareholders and certainly on a per share basis, Again, getting bigger just for the sake of being bigger uh, is not necessarily a focus for us. Now, if there's something strategic, you know, or, you know, we got bigger through something directly on strategy, such as building additional tanks or phases of the DRU, you know, that's absolutely something that we would be interested in. But, but again, just getting bigger for the sake of getting bigger is not a real focus for us. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Robert Kwan with the RBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Hey, good morning. Um, I'd like to come back to some comments you made earlier on the call around capital allocation and specifically things improve. Maybe you look at share buybacks in the second half. But you also talked about what sounds like a pretty significant ramp up in commercial discussions around new growth um, that may come together called later this year or so. When you think about your, your funding, and your funding slide shows, I think, the ability to self-fund in the 300 to $350 million range per year, do you see that then as being kind of the optimistic case for capital spending for, for 2022 if you're thinking about putting money out the door in the second half around buybacks? I, I can start on the buyback one, and then maybe, Steve, you can touch upon so the growth outlook for next year. You know, that buyback comment they made, Robert, was in the context of our current capital plan for this year, you know, and, you know, assuming a uh, consistent capital plan for next year. You know, obviously, and as I, I think the start of the question I gave, you know, mentioned that our focus from a capital allocation will always be on growth capital to the extent that, you know, that growth capital is being deployed for towards projects uh, that have characteristics like we typically deploy. You know, so to the extent that our capital – uh, gets flexed up, you know, through the back half of this year, and we have visibility to having higher capital through next year, then absolutely that would be the focus from a capital allocation perspective, uh, you know, uh, above share buybacks. Just given the return, we see that, and the long-term value, we see that delivering to our shareholders. Uh, Steve, do you want to touch on the sort of growth uh, aspect of that? Yeah, and then on the capital side, obviously, yes, it, you know, since we haven't signed any agreements, we're not going to – we kind of know our funding plan through the next six – you know, through the mid-year. And if we are able to sign agreements, that, you know, that would be back half-lated, the new capital. But um, I would say, you know, right now we're kind of in that 150 to $200 million range. 
And then if we get a DRU, if we sign a DRU, it pushes us up into that right around $300 million range if we're able to sign a DRU, um, Robert. And so we can we could definitely see that kind of – we see that progressing, you know, over the next, you know, three to five years. That makes sense. Um, just to break down the CapEx, you noted that roughly half, if I'm reading it right, of this year's CapEx, you're putting in the bucket of beneficial to, to ESG. Um, are you considering the DRU as being in that? And can you just talk about that? Or, or if it's not, just can you talk and elaborate on what the nature of some of the other projects are? Yeah, so... I will I will talk a little bit about that. Um, first, the DRU we've we've done quite extensive research on just how how is this negative or positive? And you know, one of the things is you know the DRU is separating the, the the condensate from the crude oil. That exact thing will will happen on the U.S. Gulf Coast as it's refined out. So with that, you got to think that's kind of net neutral. The actual CO2 there. And then, you know, when, with re removing that 30 to 35% condensate, you're not having to transport that on pipe down. And you're not having, you're not having to transport that going down to the states, but you're also saving that, that barrel coming back up. And so we see that as a, actually the savings is a twice the, about, about 150% more than the actual CO2 footprint of the DRU itself. So on a North American basis, we see that not in phase one and phase two uh, emissions, probably about 150% savings on a North American basis. Um, so it, it does have a significant. Now the other one is at, at Mooshaw, and I kind of talked about that project. Um, and then there's others that we're looking at. Um, at Edmonton, we're looking at a pretty significant spend that's really uh, in that uh, renewable space. Got it. Um, okay. And, and if I can just finish um, question of your tanks and contracting. I know you've got a lot of newer tanks, but um, have you had any uh, re contracts expire? And can you talk about what recontracting pricing trends have been? Um, not you, but others had expressed that given some of those tanks were built in the past, and if you think about it from a, an avoided cost pricing, there actually was upward pressure on rates. Um, is that something you're seeing or, or expecting with with future tank uh, contract rollovers? So, you know, we've only had one contract expire really over the last year and a half, uh, and that contract just rolled into a natural evergreen kind of kind of contract. Uh, we've got a couple of contracts coming up uh, in the latter part of this year, uh, and we're currently in contract negotiations there. Uh, and right now, it, it appears that it's the recontracting will be right at or maybe even a little bit above the existing rates for those tanks. I'm just wondering, because when there's – like if you're talking about signing additional commercial agreements, or maybe is this just how you're dealing with existing customers um, and trying to favor them? But if you've got others who want new tanks who are willing to pay returns based on today's capital costs, shouldn't that provide reasonable uplift then on pricing? 
you know, we've gotten more and more capital efficient, right, uh, at building tanks. Um, and I think some of that, some of the labor costs have went down uh, for tankage. So I would say, you know, I don't think steel costs have went up. But so I would say it's still in that, you know, as these expiring, we're seeing some of the rates go up. But uh, some of these were five-year agreements, uh, Robert. And then those five-year agreements, there hadn't been a significant change across there. Obviously, when the 10-year agreements start to expire, we will there will be a potential to raise some rates. Um, but all of our tanks have an escalator on them. So th- that's one of the reasons why you're not seeing the rates go up any kind of significant amount is because they all have annual escalators on them. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next question comes from Andrew Kuski with Credit Suisse. Your line is open. Thanks. Good morning. I, I guess there's a broader question as it relates to the market environment. And when we see Trans Mountain done and Line 3 gets done, you know, does that play right into your wheelhouse with tank positioning? And, and I ask the question, parties, do you see the market environment becoming a bit more dynamic with additional egress? I don't know about dynamic. Um, I think that we see a lot more interplay between our Edmonton and our Hardesty assets. Uh, I, I, and the d- dynamics between those, as you as you get a, a greater market pool, uh, you know, to the to, to the Pacific, um, where everything else in the past had been just drawn into into the U.S. Gulf Coast and Midwest. Um, I think you know that that creates potentially uh, some excess capacity, which really generally reduces volatility uh, in the market. Uh, so, as far as, yeah, go ahead. No, so sorry, sorry. Continue. No, no, I'm good. Um, and I, I guess just a, a different question: When you think about just the DRU economics right now, uh, with egress issues looking to be ending. What's the tone of conversations? And I ask the question in part because, you know, there's clearly the benefit of higher commodity prices, but then there's also the detriment of higher commodity prices as it relates to W1 costs. Um, so with the DRU, I mean, one of the big – the U.S. refiners are still a little leery because that crack spread is still pretty pretty tight in the States. And, and, you know, their their economics have been pretty challenged over a year so. They're pretty leery in the U.S. to enter any really long-term contracts right now. Um, and then with the producers, I think there's a couple things going on there. One is uh, they want to see it run. So they want to see the DRU run. They want to see and prove it out that it does work. Uh, and then the other the other piece there is, you know, their balance sheets have been weakened by, by COVID. You know, they're strengthening now, but their balance sheets were weakened by COVID. So... I think it's just an overall strengthening of the of our customers will help help with it, and I think uh, proving out the actual operation will help. Uh, as far as condensate pricing, uh, you know, as long as we're still importing from the states, there's still going to be a pretty good size differential between Canadian condensate pricing and uh, you know condens and condensate on the U.S. Gulf Coast. So that diff is going to remain wide. Thank you. Our next question comes from Matt Taylor with Tudor Pickering Holt and Company. Your line is open. 
Yeah, a quick one for me here. Um, on the, it's on the gathering pipes. It looks like revenue and volumes dropped quarter over quarter. I was just wondering if there's any competitive pressures you're seeing there, or um, I would have expected it to be slowly trending up. So any color there would be helpful. Yeah, I don't think there was any competitive pressure there. I think that was just total, you know, you're, people aren't drilling. And for crude oil right now, you know, the drill rigs had stopped, so you're just seeing decline, uh, just kind of natural decline uh, month on month. Uh, so, you know, as, as, as the producers do start to deploy those drilling rigs again, we'll see that reverse. Great. That help, that's helpful. Thanks, Keith. That's it for me. Thank you. Our next question comes from Chris Tillett with Barclays. Q-Line is open. Uh, hi, guys. Good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Most of my questions have been asked by this point, but um, I guess maybe just one quick one if I could. Sort of, um, you know, retrospectively, I, I appreciate the comments around, um, you know, your, your buyback philosophy, particularly as it relates to uh, performance in the marketing business. But if I could just look at, you know, the, the fourth quarter of, 2020, I think you guys did um, close to about $20 million in buybacks, and, and that was obviously, you know, not the strongest quarter there for marketing. So um, just trying to kind of marry the decision-making process last quarter with, you know, sort of what you're uh, anticipating moving forward, if, you know, you could help us um, sort of sort that out. Yep, thanks, Chris. Uh, I mean, the buyback in December was very much in conjunction with the early redemption of our convertible debentures. So, you know, as a reminder, we had those convertible debentures for, for an extended period of time. Those are trading well into the money. Uh, you know, given our, our, you know, absolute focus on per share metrics here, um, you know, we'd investigated, you know, different options where we could try and mitigate the dilution from those convertible debentures. Uh, with some of the pressure we saw at the end of the year, um, you know, the, our shares began to trade in around that conversion price. We, we opportunistically called those debentures for early redemption uh, in an effort to try, given our liquidity, and in an effort to try and mitigate the dilution. Uh, as, as, you know, it's a 30-day call period. During that period, the shares sort of vacillated in around the conversion price. And, and so what that NCIB really we executed on there was to try, to the extent that those shares actually did convert, uh, into equity as opposed to being cash settled, we wanted to try and mitigate some of the dilution there because over time we would have wanted to have bought back those shares. Um, you know, what actually ended up playing out is of our, you know, just under $100 million of notional amount, uh, about 95% of it cash settled. So, you know, call it, you know, four-ish million actually equity settled. Uh, the buyback at that time was, you know, in anticipation of potentially a bit more of that than that actually being equity settled. So, um, you, you know, really the buyback activities there were more in relation to our, uh, the early redemption of our convertible debentures as opposed to, you know, a longer term call on our capital allocation, you know, vis-a-vis -vis marketing performance. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that, that's helpful. And I, I appreciate the color then. So then, it, you know, basically something more, um, not technical, I guess, but certainly not something that you would think, um, you know, would repeat this year. No, 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 that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, as I spoke to in my prepared remarks, you know, that thankfully we now have a very, you know, a much, a much more simple capital structure, you know, fully investment grade. So, 
you know, opportunities like that and the refinancing of our notes that we've done over the past 18 months, um, you know, have largely been done. So, no, I wouldn't expect that. I would expect, as I said, you know, earlier that to the extent that we utilize the NCIB, you know, that will be in conjunction with an improvement in our outlook for marketing and, you know, somewhat dependent on our outlook for growth capital. Uh, again, if that flexes up, that could impact our ability to utilize it, as I indicated on uh, in one of the answers previously. Chris, uh, that's it for me. Thanks. Thank you. There are no further questions. So I would like to hand the call back to Mark. Thanks, operator. And uh, let me take this opportunity to thank everybody for joining us for our 2020 fourth quarter and full year conference call. Again, I'd like to note that we have made certain supplementary information available on our website, gibsonenergy.com. If you have any further questions, please reach out at investor.relations at gibsonenergy.com. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for your support of Gibson, and have a great day. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.